0: So there are two readings, um, both from Matthew chapter 13, uh, starting at verse 24, which is on page 979 of the Bibles in front of you. So that's uh, Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, you didn't sow good seed in your field. Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And now we're um, skipping ahead to verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear.
1: Hi, everyone. Um, Thank you for coming this evening. Great to see everybody. Um, Yes, as Tim said, this is the first of the summer series where a few of us in the congregation get a chance to do this. I'm the first into bat. And I stand here with some trepidation since the vicar um, preached a masterclass of a sermon on the same passage in the morning service. Um, And you would do well to listen to it online. (laughs) <laughs> um despite that i want to say thank you to charles and to tim for letting a few of us try this out this summer it's um it's a great expression of your encouragement It's an expression of your trust thank you lord we just ask you as we gather here now that you will speak to us by your spirit and that we will indeed have ears to hear amen, amen. we are well into the summer and summer is traditionally slow news season. And as if on cue, my friend from Hong Kong, Chi Mei, has just walked in through the door. We were colleagues together in Hong Kong as journalists. And as journalists know, on slow news days, um, you go into the back cupboard and you bring out the stories that you had made earlier, pre-packed canned stories, we called them, um, for days when nothing's going on. No need for that this year, and what a few weeks it's been. Each new day has brought new stories, shocking, incredible stories, and the events just keep coming. There's a lot of talk around about reality. Everyone says we're entering a new reality. Many say politicians have too long been out of touch with reality. Some are trying to reverse or suspend reality. Let's have a second vote, they say. Our archbishops, Canterbury and York, put it this way. The vote to withdraw from the EU means we must all reimagine what it means to be the United Kingdom. Reimagine. Now, that's a word, that's a hope filled word for our times when so many of our long held assumptions are falling away. We are living in times when we must reimagine our reality. And you know, whatever political twists and turns we are living through, think of France. Living with the reality of raw grief and fear after repeated acts of terrorism. Think of Turkey and all that region, its people living in a reality where constant crisis, constant threat, and danger have become completely normal. For these people, reimagining reality is somewhat more traumatic. Whatever we might think or feel in these times, we are here to remind ourselves and to remind each other that there is another more important reality occurring in our consciousness. Beyond the rules of kings and governments, beyond the rule of the majority, there is another rule that demands our greater loyalty and the devotion of our hearts. And though many of its physical dimensions are for now hidden, it's this reality that should demand our best time and effort our best engagement and discourse. That greater reality is the rule of God over our individual lives, over the collective life of the church. And this rule of God is called in the Gospels the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And unlike the reality we see around us, one that is constantly shaped and reshaped by events and whose outcome is uncertain, the greater reality, the kingdom of God, is immutable. Is immune to events, and its outcome is completely certain. That's not to say, of course, that we always have a good grasp of what the kingdom of God is, and that's why we have these parables. We're in the second of a series looking at the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Parables were a special way of communicating that Jesus used to help people come to their own realization of what the kingdom of God is really like. And that was necessary because the people listening to Jesus at that time had a certain understanding of what the kingdom of God is. But they were mistaken, and Jesus had to tell them the truth. And it's necessary for us to hear these parables because we too come to Jesus. Some of us come to Jesus to pledge allegiance to him. But with our mistaken notions of what his rule over us should be like, and Jesus has to tell us the truth. Each parable reveals a particular aspect, and together the parables build a true, accurate picture of the kingdom of God. The more we see of the picture, the firmer our hold on what is actually happening, whatever events might be unfolding around us. The more we understand about the kingdom of God, the more grounded we will be in reality. This week, our parable is The Wheat and the Weeds, chapter 13, starting at verse 24, page 979. It's a short, punchy tale, and very helpfully, Jesus explains its meaning a few, a few verses later. So what does this parable tell us about the kingdom of God, and what aspects of reality is it revealing that we might have missed? The first is that the kingdom of God is a process. It's still coming into being, and that's why farming is such a great metaphor for it. Verse 24, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Jesus has started the process. He's planted the seeds. The wheat is growing, but is not ripe yet for harvest. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's still coming into being. Second, in this period of the kingdom, there is serious enemy activity going on. Jesus, as the sower, is planting wheat, that is, he is strategically growing his kingdom in the world, but an enemy is surreptitiously planting weeds, that is, strategically sabotaging the growth of the kingdom. What's not spelled out in the text is that the weed in the parable is a weed called darnel, which in its early stages looks like wheat, but it actually has a poisonous grain. And such was its threat to the crop that Roman law prohibited the act of planting darnel in your neighbor's field if you wanted to do an act of revenge on him. I'm not sure, you know, why that was such a serious thing, but clearly that was a problem for them in that day and there was a law against it. We should note that Jesus knows exactly who his enemy is. He names him. It's the devil who is attempting to sabotage his field. Now, I don't think I've always had or wanted to have this view of evil. For a long time, I preferred to explain manifestations of evil in the world in terms of extreme human sin or weakness or folly. I'd rather do that than acknowledge that Satan exists. But whatever I think about it, whatever you think about it, Jesus is quite clear about it. Satan exists, he's real, he's at large, he is working to undermine the kingdom of God. And part of his strategy is to sow evil in the guise of a good thing. He sows weeds that look like wheat. Third, the parable tells us that the farmer, Jesus, deliberately leaves the wheat and the weeds to grow alongside each other until the harvest. He's quite insistent about that. God's people and Satan's people are to live side by side in the world until the kingdom's final installment. And he resists his servant's suggestion, well, let's pull up the weeds now, let's pull up the weeds immediately. No, he says. Instead, verse 30, let both wheat and weeds grow together until the harvest. Let good and evil coexist until then. The master is playing the long game. He means to defeat His enemy by biding his time. Finally, the parable is clear that the final installment of the kingdom is coming. It is going to happen. The kingdom of God will come into being in full at the harvest, at the end of the age, when Jesus comes for the second time. And at that time, Jesus will judge who's a wheat and who's a weed, and they will be separated. Verse 41 The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil they will be thrown into the fiery furnace the wheat on the other hand will be gathered into the barn that is the people of god will come into their salvation and verse 43 the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father that's it jesus says that's the reality the kingdom of god is here but is not yet entirely here in this period of waiting satan is strategically sowing evil in the guise of good The people of the kingdom and the people of Satan are to live side by side, and there's even a sense in the parable that somehow the current coexistence of good and evil is vital to the success of the harvest, to the kingdom's ultimate triumph. But when the kingdom does come in full and Jesus is on the throne for everyone to see, there will be a judgment and a separation between God's people and those of the evil one. That, Jesus says, is the kingdom of God. Now, what might be challenging about the reality that Jesus is describing? For the original hearers, for the disciples, as they heard Jesus explain the parable, it was an incredibly difficult thing to accept because it crushed some long-held expectations on two counts. First, the Jews had long expected a political revolution, a release from foreign colonial rule, and the re-establishment of Israel under The rule of the Messiah King. That's what the Jews meant by the kingdom of God. But Jesus says no that's not what's happening now and what's more the revolution is not political. Second the Jews had even longer held assumptions about what it meant to be set apart as the people of God. So this parable is about sowing and every Jew knows that Mosaic law forbids the planting of two types of seed in one vineyard. And that law wasn't just about good agriculture. It's one of many laws prohibiting the practice of mixing things. You don't mix an oak ox and a donkey on the same plow. You don't mix wool and linen in one piece of cloth. Laws that reinforce for the Jews their exclusivity as the chosen people of God set apart from the Gentiles. We do not mix. The reference is from Deuteronomy 22, which very helpfully the commentator Mark Beard pointed out to me earlier this week thanks for that and to this assumption jesus also says no your old understanding is no longer valid insider and outsider is no longer a matter of jew and gentile jews cannot assume they are kingdom people just because they're jews and they cannot assume that gentiles are evil because they're gentiles no says jesus you're an insider if god judges you righteous and you're an outsider if not And by by the way, whilst you wait for that judgment, you are to live side by side in the mix. That was the huge challenge for Jesus' contemporary listeners. Jesus was telling them to revise centuries-old assumptions about the kingdom of God, and they had to decide whether to believe him. And we know from the Gospels that some do not, despite seeing Jesus perform a string of amazing miracles, despite the undeniable authority of his teaching, The fact that Jesus did not say or do what they wanted, the fact that Jesus was not the kind of Messiah they expected, meant that some people decided against him. They walked away. How about for us? The truth, what truth is Jesus speaking here about the kingdom that we might find difficult or challenging to accept? Perhaps challenging to the extent of wondering if we should walk away. And I suggest that this parable, this teaching, might be difficult for us on two counts. First, the parable tells us that waiting, waiting is an important part of God's strategy in bringing in the harvest successfully. That wasn't the way his servants thought about it. They wanted to do something about it straight away. But that's God's way of thinking about it. So we have to wait. There's been 2,000 years between Jesus' first coming and the present day. Quite a long time. But really, whatever the time frame, it's always difficult waiting for a good thing to happen. What is it that you are waiting for? Are you desperate for something good to happen, but it hasn't happened yet? It might be something very tangible. It might be your work. You feel stuck doing something you don't want to do, but no other doors are are opening for you. Or you just don't know what you're supposed to be doing with your life, and you're waiting for direction. You might be a single person waiting on marriage or you might be a person in a difficult, complicated relationship that desperately needs something to change. Your waiting might have to do with your spiritual health. Maybe some old bad habit that keeps tripping you up, makes you feel like a really bad Christian and you're praying and you're waiting for change in yourself. Or are you simply tired of this life because this life has been hard? And it's been hard for many, many years. And you know, if Jesus is going to come, then why can't he just come now? Jesus says the kingdom is a waiting game. And that's hard for us. It's hard waiting for the kingdom to come in ourselves. To see the growth of the kingdom in ourselves in the form of change for the good. And it's hard waiting for the kingdom to come in that final universal cosmic sense because of the evil we see in the world. And that's the second reason why we might find this parable, this teaching difficult. If the kingdom of God is here in any sense at all, even if it's still coming into being, why does God allow evil to persist in the world? What good can come from God prolonging the season between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, a season in which evil is clearly running rampant? As believers, we can formulate arguments to counter the problem of evil from our understanding of the Bible. But if we're honest, these arguments are never entirely satisfactory in the face of the colossal human suffering that evil brings. And the problem of evil is profoundly difficult for those who don't believe. Often it is indeed offensive. And the problem of evil prevents them from considering God at all. So living as we do with waiting, living as we do with evil, we find ourselves echoing the Psalmist's cry and they cried it a lot. How long, O Lord, how long? If you are asking that question and it's really a cry of your heart, then I believe God will answer you. God will answer the specific cry of your particular heart. But if what you're asking is an academic question, if you just want to resolve a philosophical conundrum to your intellectual satisfaction, you know, I don't know that you will get an answer. I'm not saying that the Bible, and from it the truths of our faith, are not intellectually watertight. I believe that they are. And it's very interesting to study this text and to see how it does answer basic philosophical questions or how it stands up to current scientific discovery. But what I find interesting, note what I find compelling about the person of Jesus is that he doesn't do pure intellectual exercise. He doesn't engage with the Pharisees when they come asking him about an academic point of law. Instead, he shows them up for missing the point. Jesus does what the Psalms call on God to do. Jesus shames the proud and the arrogant. But Jesus always engages if your question, whatever your question is, if it comes from a cry of your heart. Think of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus at night. Think of that rather sad conversation with the rich young ruler. Jesus always engages with, he always honors the cry. Of the human heart. Today we are asking him how long Lord do we have to wait? And Lord why do you allow all this evil? And his answer from the parable is this, I want you to grow. In this waiting time, in this evil time, I want you to grow. Is that answer good enough? Is that answer good enough for us? Let me tell two stories that might help us to consider the caliber of Jesus' answer. The first story is about a doctor. He's a colleague of my sister, who is a great, my sister Grace, who's a nurse at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. And this, this colleague of hers is a vascular surgeon called David Knott, who spends a great deal of his time performing emergency surgery in disaster areas and war zones. Bosnia in the 90s, Gaza, Afghanistan, Iraq, he's been to all those places. A few weeks ago, I was driving to work listening to Desert Island Discs, and the castaway was this very doctor, David Knott, whom Grace had told me about years and years ago. And in one exchange with Kirsty Young, the presenter, the doctor described a recent experience in Syria. He was working in a makeshift hospital 100 meters from the front line. The patient on the table in front of him, losing blood from his chest by the liter, was a fighter from Islamic State. And in the room watching the operation were six of this man's fellow fighters, each one holding an AK-47. None of them knew their comrade was being operated on by an Englishman. And the doctor, for fear of his life, kept silent, shaking all the while. But he stopped the man's bleeding and he completed the operation. At the end of his telling of this account, Kirsty Young asked the doctor, do you care who you operate on? Without hesitation, the doctor replied, no, I don't care who I operate on. I think of that person, and maybe I saved his life. Maybe he might change his mind about things. Kirsty Young said, we all know about the horrors that are perpetrated in the name of so-called Islamic State. I think some people will find that a very difficult thing to hear, that you would still say this is a life worth saving, because this man, he might now be fit and well and have gone on to kill many people. Exactly, the doctor said, but I don't know that, and you don't know that. Nobody knows that. And he may find out that he was operated on by a Christian surgeon in the hospital, and I hope he does find out. This doctor says he's a Christian. He's spent more than 20 years risking his life in the most extreme situations, each and every one a supreme confirmation that there is evil in the world and that there are evil people in the world. And this man lives his life doing what he does, living alongside the evil, even saving the lives of evil men. This man does not judge, that's not his job. But in this waiting time, this evil time, the kingdom of God is growing in him, isn't it? And he's growing the kingdom of God in the world, isn't he? My second story. A few days ago, an old journalist friend of mine, Nochime Limi, shared an essay on Facebook written by a Chinese dissident called Yu Jie. I've not heard of him, don't worry. Perhaps Heidi has. The essay is called China's Christian Future. And in it, this man, this dissident, gives some very impressive statistics. He writes, when the People's Republic of China was founded in 1949, Christians in China numbered half a million. Some 70 years later, under the Chinese government's harsh suppression, the Christian population has reached more than 60 million. The number grows by several million each year, a phenomenon some have described as a gushing well or a geyser, interesting choice of word that. At this rate, by 2030, Christians in China will exceed 200 million, surpassing the United States as the largest Christian population in the world. But more impressive even than these very impressive statistics is this man's testimony. Christianity has transformed how I see myself as a dissident. Yudia writes, over decades of involvement with the Chinese democracy movement, I have seen so-called dissidents think the same, talk the same, act the same, as those from whom they are supposedly dissenting. Too often, the communists and the dissidents are kindred spirits. Personal ambition and power struggles drive friends and colleagues apart. My fellow dissidents attach great hopes to democracy, but democracy is simply a better method of public management and division of powers. The least worst, as Churchill said. Democracy is not the horizon of all human hope and longing. If one does not believe in something other than democracy, one is no better off than the communists, making a god of yet another political system. He continues, when I became a Christian, I learned to recognize myself as a sinner. In doing so, I developed a sensitivity to sin that helps me to recognize evil and injustice when I see them. So now, as I point out the tyranny of the communist regime, I reflect on and judge myself. This interior work of repentance for my own sins has transformed my fight against totalitarianism. No longer am I merely pointing out faults in the world. I also recognize them in myself. So today we are asking God, why do we have to wait? And the dissident answers, 55 million of my countrymen have come to faith under persecution and millions more by the year. Is that worth your wait? People who have lived only under a brutal regime that has in turn made brutes of them. Now seeing themselves for what they really are and seeing God for who he really is Is that worth your weight? I ask God, why does evil persist in the world? And the doctor answers, maybe that ISIS fighter will find out that he was operated on by a Christian surgeon. I hope he does find out. Maybe he will change his mind about things. Such faith, such hope, such love. We ask Jesus why, and he answers, live through the season by growing. These men, this doctor, this dissident, are showing me what Jesus means. In them, the kingdom of God is growing, and through them, they are in turn growing the kingdom of God in the world, in quantity and in quality. In them, I see a glimpse of why this waiting time, why even this evil time might make sense after all.